0: For so text this evening is uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 20 in particular, but I'd like to begin reading at verse 8 to bring in the context So Luke 2, beginning at verse 8, reading through verse 21, but focusing this evening on verse 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Notice the wording there of verse 20, and the shepherds returned. We might wonder, returned from what and To what? They had just had the most amazing night. They had witnessed one of the most amazing displays of God's glory ever revealed to mankind. Think of it, angels, messengers of God from heaven appeared before their very eyes and told them of the birth of the Christ. And following the angel's suggestion to go to Bethlehem, they had found the Messiah themselves. Himself And in their excitement, they went on what I would call a witness rampage, making it known what they had been told about the child. And then we read, and the shepherds returned. We presume that they returned to their fields and to their sheep, which they had temporarily set aside in their haste to go and see the Christ child. Eventually, they returned to their earthly duties and responsibilities some might say even in a spirit of sadness and sympathy, they had to return to real life. We also know what it is to have to return to real life after experiencing a, a time of joy. The Christmas season is something like this. You of all of the preparation that has been gone through leading up to Christmas Day, the, the decorating, the shopping, the plans made for family get-togethers, and there's a certain amount of anticipation that grows as Christmas approaches, and then what happens? For all of the time and energy leading up to a very enjoyable day, we have to move on. Family goes home, the wrapping paper is gathered in mounds and disposed of, the decorations and Christmas music are put away until next year, and of course at the heart of it all is remembering the birth, the coming of our Savior, and once Christmas Day has come and gone, uh, it seems that Christmas hymns are suddenly off-limits. And practically nothing will be said of Jesus' birth because the tradition is to leave that topic for the same time next year. And so there's kind of a letdown that occurs after Christmas. And as much as we might want things to be different, it's just not possible to celebrate Christmas year-round. And so what comes to mind is the saying that every good thing must come to an end, at least until next year. Well, our experience of Christmas is something like what the shepherds went through. One major difference is that what the shepherds experienced was entirely spiritual in nature. In other words, what we experience in our culture at Christmas time is this weird mixture, really, of spiritual and earthly things. The warm feelings at Christmas in our culture are not entirely about the birth of Christ. But for the shepherds, their Christmas was an unhindered, uncluttered, spiritual experience of God's glory. Something like what Jacob experienced when he saw in his dream a vision of a ladder reaching to heaven with angels ascending and descending. And upon awaking, the sense of God's presence was so real that he named that place Bethel, which means house of God, and even set up a stone of remembrance so that he might never forget that awesome spiritual experience. Peter has similar thoughts on the Mount of Transfiguration when he proposed the building of three tabernacles. Mary Magdalene was of the same frame of mind in her desire to cling to the risen Lord. These are all profoundly spiritual experiences, and the response was to want them to go on forever. And though we are not told so directly, there's no doubt that the shepherds were deeply affected by their heavenly visit. And what a night they had. Nothing on this earth, not even the seven wonders of the world, can hold a candle to what they saw that night in the fields of Bethlehem. Let's take in for a moment that the scene that occurred that night. God had led Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to fulfill prophecy. The town was overcrowded and Mary and Joseph had to resort to the shelter of a stable. And there God's promise was fulfilled when Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Meanwhile, according to verse 8, right there near to Bethlehem were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. These shepherds had presumably gathered their flocks all together in a sheepfold and were keeping guard over them through the night. Knowing something of their usual practices, these shepherds were probably sleeping in shifts while at least one of them guarded the gate to the pen. An interesting side note is that the flocks in the hills around Bethlehem were the flocks from which the temple sacrifices were taken. And we are told by scholars that these flocks would have been kept particularly close to Bethlehem during the rainy months of December and January. So with these things in mind, we can picture the shepherds huddled together, trying to sleep despite the cold of the night, and they have no idea about what is going to happen So how startling it must have been to suddenly have an angel standing before them, an angel radiating the glory of God's majesty, so that the Lord's glory shone around them, illuminating everything, dazzling in its appearance. There was no doubt in the shepherd's mind that this brilliant display was a supernatural revelation. And how their hearts must have raced from the shock. It was unmistakable that this angelic being in front of them had come from the presence of God himself. And as we read here, always man's initial response to the presence of God's glory is fear. In fact, here in our text, we are told that the shepherds responded with great fear. It's too overwhelming for us who are mere creatures and sinful ones at that. Reminded of how God told Moses, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And we see that the shepherds did not even need to see a vision of God himself to be confounded. They saw through this one angel a glimpse of the power and greatness and holiness and majesty of God, and they were filled with great fear. But the angel didn't come to make them afraid. He didn't appear in order to condemn them for their sins. He wasn't there to drive them to despair, but to the contrary, the purpose of his coming was one of peace and joy, and so right away he, he seeks to calm them. Fear not, he declares. He explains that he has come to announce good news. Really, it's the word for gospel. He has come to announce gospel, gospel news. Far from being there to harm them, he's there to tell them news of joy, great joy. And what has happened? What is the news that the angel announces? Verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In other words, the Messiah is come. The one who was promised to come from David is born in David's city, Bethlehem. And he is a Savior, the one who would save them and us from our sins, the one who would reconcile us as sinful creatures to a holy God. The one who is also the Christ, the Messiah, the one anointed by God himself to save and to rule his people. He's also the Lord, Christ the Lord, Adonai, the Almighty God. The angel announces that this one, who is all of these things, has been born. The angel went on to inform them how they will recognize him. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying In a manger. Think of it, apparently, no other child that night in Bethlehem would be found in such a lowly condition. No other baby in Bethlehem that night matched this description. This lowly sign was able to pinpoint the right baby. And then, as if only waiting for a signal, a multitude of heavenly hosts appear with this angel and praise God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, (coughs) and on earth, peace among those. With whom he is pleased, their praises were like a reflex response to what the angel had just announced. The hosts of heaven, it seems, could not help but respond in this way to the announcement of the birth of Christ. So great was he and his work, so wonderful uh, that that hundreds, if not thousands, of angels appeared in the sky in the sight of these shepherds to praise God. Literally. The text speaks of a multitude of the army of heaven. Multitude means a large number. The number of angels must have been enormous. Some years later, Jesus spoke rather casually of how he could call 12 legions of angels to come to his rescue, 120,000. We aren't told how many appeared to these shepherds, but we know it was a great many. And it was a good thing that at first only one angel appeared to these shepherds, I don't think they would have been able to have handled the sudden appearance of a multitude of these heavenly beings. Because we can, imagine only, we can only imagine how loud and how spectacular and how overwhelming it must have been to see this great crowd of angels acknowledging the power and faithfulness and love and grace of God in sending his son, the Messiah. And notice how the angels praised Jesus coming as God's work. God must receive the glory. They say, "Glory to God in the highest." And what is the glorious work that this Messiah is going to do? The the angels announce that he has come to bring peace, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. God is sending the Prince of Peace, the one who brings peace to the earth. Only indirectly, peace between nations and peace between. Man and man, but directly and primarily, we're talking about peace between God and man. Any earthly peace is but a byproduct of having peace with God. When we, when we have peace with God, when he comes to us through Christ, and he works in us repentance and faith, and in this way takes away the guilt of our sin, and by his grace does not impute our sin to us. And we experience this peace when God speaks to our hearts through his Holy Spirit, through the gospel, and convinces us that our sins have been forgiven because christ has paid the penalty of our sin for us when you have this peace you have the confidence of addressing god in prayer you know that in christ you are safe never to be condemned again for your sin this is the peace that only god can give and a peace that he gives through his son jesus christ and not only do the angels give glory to god for this peace which makes sense if uh, which only makes sense if God is the source behind it. But they also further describe this peace as being given according to God's sovereign choice. Notice, literally, verse 14 reads, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace toward men of good will." You probably can recognize that that's essentially the translation of the Old King James version, very literal translation. Well, this peace, let's let's try to understand what this is saying. This. This peace is clearly a gift of God, and notice the idea here is most certainly not that God has peace toward good men who can be described as being themselves of goodwill. This would mean that God's grace is for good people, good people who have somehow made themselves pleasing to God, which is not grace. It's impossible, and it's contrary to the gospel, which says that God saves sinners. He saves those who who know that they cannot save themselves, who cannot make themselves good. In fact, think of it, what a disheartening message it would be if the angel was saying that God has peace, that he has salvation only for those who are people of goodwill or people who are well-pleasing to God by their obedience. That's not what the text is saying. Actually, the truth that is being announced is just the opposite. The idea is that God brings peace to men of his goodwill, to men of his good pleasure, among those with whom he is pleased, is how the ESV translates it. According to God's will, according to God's pleasure, according to God's good will, he has sovereignly chosen to save sinners, to save you and me by making us pleasing to him through Christ, through giving us faith, through Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. His good pleasure rests on sinners, in order to make us, to make sinners recipients of his peace. It's not because we are somehow worthy in ourselves, but because we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be the objects of his good pleasure. Again, not because of anything good in us. The goal of his gracious favor is to make peace between elect sinners and himself. So glory to God in the highest and on earth peace Among those with whom he is pleased, with those upon whom he is pleased to grant his gracious work of salvation. What an amazing message and what an amazing experience it must have been for those shepherds to hear this message in this way. And notice the immediate response of the shepherds. Let us go over to Jerusalem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. We recognize here that without hesitation, and in fact, with eagerness and joy, they go to search out the Christ child. And this is a great example of faith to us. Uh, their faith was so great that it fought against everything that might have prevented them from going to the Lord Jesus Christ. When told that their Savior would be this lowly baby in a manger, they did not hesitate to believe. They they said to one another, literally, let us go at once or let us go without delay. There's this urgency in, in their expression here. Let us go at once and see this thing. And verse 16 says, And they went with haste. They went to find him as fast as they could. Why? Because they believed that the glorious message of the angel was from the Lord. Verse 15, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They believed the word of the Lord, no matter how silly or ridiculous it may have seemed to human thinking second reason they went to find the Christ as fast as they could was because they were excited. You see, there was more than just simple belief in the fact of Jesus' coming. His coming was precious to them. Their hearts were deeply affected by what was happening. What added to the excitement was that Jesus' coming was the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise. If we understand the era in which the shepherds lived, we can understand in a better way their excitement. They were living in the era of that 400-year period between the time of the Old and New Testaments, that time in which God did not reveal himself to his people other than as they would read the scriptures of the Old Testament. During that 400 years, there was no new revelation. There were no prophets speaking to God's people. There were no inspired writers of a book of the Bible, no voice from heaven, no dreams or visions. God was silent. Imagine that, 400 years. And with such a long period of silence, it's not hard to see that for those living then, it took great faith to believe that the Christ was still going to come. I think of the people that lived back then and, and think about how their faith during such a dark time is a rebuke to us who have received so much revelation. Reality is that sometimes we have moments of doubt concerning God and His promises. With all of the chaos, with all of the problems going on in the world, the thought can very easily enter our minds where is God? And as for the promise of Christ's second coming to take His people, to take us to be with Him in heaven, and to put an end to all of the injustice and evil of this world, we wonder is this really going to happen? Is God really guiding history to a glorious end where Christ will be revealed as the the Savior of his church? After all, it it seems sometimes like my own life is spinning out of control. Have you ever had thoughts like these? The thing is, for us, Christ has already come the first time. So many of God's promises have already been fulfilled. And we have the, the complete scriptures that reveal God's glorious works in the past as well as his plans for the future, and in a way much clearer than the Old Testament saints had. Plus, we can see God at work in the world converting sinners through the gospel. There are many tangible evidences of God's work as he answers prayers, as he works things for our good. And the point is the shepherds didn't have it as good as we do. So their faith was even more than it is for us, a trust in things not seen. And this made what God suddenly revealed to them that first Christmas all the more precious. Their excitement is revealed in their haste to find Jesus, but there is more. We read of what they did in verse 17, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. I would describe what happened as them becoming spontaneous evangelists. In other words, as far as we know, they were not commanded to spread the good news. They just did it. The news of what God had accomplished in the sending of Christ was too fantastic to be held in. People must know. And have you ever had something that you considered amazing that you just can't wait to tell other people about, well, these shepherds could not hold in their enthusiasm about the Christ. And notice we aren't told exactly when they did this witnessing. We don't even though if they found Mary and Joseph right away that first night, it may have been the next day or so. If they had found them that first night, there would not have been a lot to people, uh, there would not have been a lot of people to talk to, besides Mary and Joseph. So I picture most of the witnessing taking place during the light of the day, as the shepherds tell anyone who will hear them what they were told by the angels concerning Mary and Joseph's child. You can picture them running up. To even strangers on the street and with great animation telling their story. And they're out of breath because they can't get their words out fast enough. But eventually it comes to an end. Now certainly not completely. It's just that eventually they have to get back to real life. They have flocks which need to be tended. I wonder if in their haste to find the Christ they left the flock completely unattended... Some have speculated that an angel kept watch over their flock for them. Perhaps one of the shepherds had stayed behind. But either way, eventually, duty calls. And so, as verse 20 says, they returned. They went back to work. They went back to the routine of daily life. And there was, from one point of view, there's no doubt that this was too bad. After such a stirring event, it must have been depressing to go back to work to have been given a glimpse of of heavenly things, to see the one long promised by God, to see the angels of heaven. and Then after all of that, to go back to tending sheep. It's quite a contrast, if you think about it. And that was not all they returned to. They returned to the earthly world of life under the rule of a wicked king. They returned to a people whose religious leaders as a whole taught that righteousness came through law-keeping and They undermined any need for the Messiah. Shepherds returned to a people who as a whole were not looking for a spiritual Messiah come to deliver them from sin. But many or most wanted a political Messiah who would raise up the throne of David, who would throw off the yoke of their Roman enemies and bring economic prosperity. So they had no place for a Messiah lying in a manger. So how nice it would have been to have left all of this behind for the joys of heaven. So from one point of view, it was too bad that the shepherds had to return to real life, and yet not all was lost. For while the kingdom of heaven was not yet come in its fullness, and while the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was not yet seen in all of his glory, they had seen the beginning of God breaking through into our sinful world. There was still so much to be accomplished, and yet they had been given insight into the spiritual realm. They could see that God's spiritual plan, his kingdom, was advancing Though they saw only a glimpse of heavenly things, it must have been enough to change their lives forever. Verse 20 tells us of this change. Verse 20 says that the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Their lives were characterized from that point on by an ongoing, the, the Greek indicates an ongoing, continual reflection on what had happened, which led them to glorify and praise God. This was not a glorifying and praising God for just a moment or for just a day or so, but this was the ongoing description of their lives. Even as they returned to their work, they remembered and they talked about what they had heard from the angels. They recalled how the angels' message was confirmed when they saw the Christ child just as the angel had said, By faith, they saw God at work and all that had happened and ascribed to him glory and praise. (coughs) Glorifying and praising are basically the same thing. If you are praising God, you are most certainly glorifying God. And if you are glorifying God, that's going to include praising God. And yet there is a distinction that can be made between these two words. The first word glorifying means to magnify. It means To make great and of course the shepherds and we can't make God great. God is already as great as great can be. God is great in himself. Uh, His work of salvation is great. What it means then for us to glorify God is to agree with God's greatness. It means that we are impressed by his greatness so that we meditate on it and we talk about it And a part of glorifying God is also obeying Him because of His greatness, because of the great things that He has done for us. We want to please Him. We want others to glorify God, to also recognize His greatness. And so we are careful by the things we do and say to make sure people can see our great God reflected in our lives. And then there's the praising of God. This word means to give joyous approval to something. In this In this instance, it means giving joyous approval to God's greatness as revealed in the sending of the Savior. Their hearts are filled with joyous approval, especially over God's great work of salvation that he is accomplishing. They love his salvation. They they rejoice in it. This is the spirit, you see, in which they returned to their work no doubt in my mind that going back to their work was not what they would have done had they had a choice. Having had a glimpse of the glories of heaven that night, it would be hard not to want to leave this sin-cursed earth for the heavenly life uh, with, with God and Messiah. But there was still so much to be accomplished. The Savior was only a baby There were still years until he would be ready to pay the penalty of sin and fulfill all righteousness. It's hard to wait, and it seems that God's promises take so long to be fulfilled. That's our earthly perspective. But we have to wait. God's in charge. God's in charge of the timetable. And in the meantime, God has given us things to do that concern this earthly life. Many of these things don't seem to have much to do with the kingdom of God. How does washing dishes and doing laundry advance the kingdom of God? How does taking out the trash and mowing the lawn fulfill any kind of spiritual calling? How does cleaning and eating and fixing things and sleeping have anything to do with spiritual things? Nevertheless, these duties of, of this life are included in the calling that God has for us. In fact, the things of everyday life are important as far as God is concerned. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything, all that we do is to be done to God's glory. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do it when, like the shepherds, we go about our daily activities, glorifying and praising God in them. I don't know about your thoughts on shepherding as it was done in biblical times, but I think it had to be one of the most boring jobs. Now, to do it well certainly took a certain amount of effort and skill, but there would still be a lot of time where you're just sitting around, a lot of time then, right, to think, to meditate. I think of how David used that as a spiritual time to think about the Lord. And a lot of the Psalms were written by David, who even as a humble shepherd knew the spiritual joys and struggles of God's people and as a man after God's own heart used his time there in the fields to write poems for God. The point is that even shepherding has meaning when we are glorifying and praising God in it. To go about our work in a spirit of glorifying and praising God means doing our work to the best of our ability even if it is menial and boring God had given these shepherds a unique way to make a living, and they could glorify God by doing it the best way that they knew how. But more than that, glorifying and praising God in their work means doing it with a song in their hearts and with a message on their lips. What do you think about as you do your work? Sometimes our work requires great concentration, and it's Difficult, if not impossible, to think about the things of the Lord. But other times we can be working with our hands and our minds are free to wander to other things. What does your mind wander to when it can? Do you pray? Do you think about God's greatness? Do you praise him? What about the opportunities to, a, to a witness that arise while doing your work? The shepherds had this opportunity right after their encounter with the angels to witness. And they spread the news. But eventually they returned. And knowing something of what their work was like, I don't picture them having a lot of human interaction other than among themselves. But as those glorifying and praising God, they surely talked about God's greatness to others when they got the chance. Lives marked by glorifying and praising God means that in their daily conversations, even just among themselves, they were not sharing the latest gossip. They were not telling dirty jokes. Or even just shooting the breeze, but their conversations came back to what they had seen and heard that night in Bethlehem. Their conversations were spiritually edifying. And in a way, our lives follow the pattern of these shepherds. We have earthly responsibilities. And even if you had the opportunities to do so, it's just not possible really to witness for hours on end every single day. God calls evangelists and missionaries to do that, but even they have responsibilities that don't allow them to share Christ 24-7. What happens to us ideally is that every week we come to church we catch here a glimpse of God's greatness and we get a taste of our spiritual rest in heaven and we begin to feel something of, of what it will like, be like one day to be in heaven with our great God. None of us has experienced even anything close to as dramatic as that of the shepherds, but through God's word and spirit and through the gathering of God's people together, we do catch a glimpse of heavenly things. And hopefully each of you leave this place with a new perspective on life, that God is God and that you are his child whom he loves and that though you sin daily and are by nature, yes, worthy of God's displeasure, yet he ministers to your heart, leading you to repentance. And to the fountain of forgiveness in Christ. And God reveals to us through the gospel that He is a God of peace who has paid the penalty of sin for us and His Son. And so every Sunday we are reminded God sent His Son to suffer in our place. And we gladly recall the good news that God does what is needed for us to be drawn into His fellowship and that He must do it, and He must do it alone because we have nothing to offer. This is really the same message of grace that led the shepherds to glorify and praise God. And as we are reminded of these glorious truths, we should leave church with a renewed love for Christ, a growing longing for his return, and a greater desire to obey him. There should be a longing in our hearts for heaven that grows as time goes on, and that is inspired through our times of worship, and yet we have to return. I dare call it the, the, the daily grind, we, we have to return to the normal daily things that make up our life now in this place. And yet you can and you ought to do them joyfully because you have Christ as your savior and a glorious future with him. You can be like the shepherds who returned glorifying and praising God. And really the key is knowing Christ, who he is, that he's come and what he has done. And remembering him through the means of grace. Remembering him in such a way that you, you, that you remain excited about what he has done for you, for your salvation. And if you share the same spiritual joy of the shepherds, let's call it Christmas joy, then your life will never be the same again. It will be a life of glorifying and praising God. Now, rather naturally, that's going to be a witnessing life. It's going to be a life of longing but a joyous life, even as you work, even as you await the fuller manifestation of Christ's kingdom glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this revelation to the lowly shepherds, men who clearly, based upon their status in society, were not people who would have been able to earn favor with you, but Father, we are reminded in that that no one can earn favor with you. Favor has been earned for us through Christ. We thank you that we are people who have experienced your goodwill toward us, giving us peace in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we go about our daily lives. We pray that we would be living lives where we are, in all that we do, glorifying and praising you, meditating upon our Savior, speaking of him to those around us in every way, Lord, seeking uh, to manifest your greatness through how we do our work and the things that we talk about. Uh, we pray, Lord, that our lives would, would manifest the fact that we are your people, rejoicing in your gift of salvation. May our love for Christ grow. May our faith in him grow. And uh, may this be manifested in how we interact Uh, in our work and with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.